The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet supported by readers. I'm your host, David Sirota. On this week's show, we've got a busy show. We're going to be talking about the railroad. Yes, those greedy, selfish railroad workers who are demanding a fair contract from the poor, impoverished railroad CEOs who've collectively pulled down over $200 million in CEO pay over the last three years. We're going to be talking about the workers' potential strike and what it could do to the U.S. economy. Then I'll be speaking with the former governor of Florida, Charlie Crist, who's now running as the current Democratic nominee for governor. He's trying to get his old job back, and he's running against the incumbent governor and professional troll Ron DeSantis this November. That's a huge race, as I'm sure we'd all love to see Ron DeSantis exit the national stage of American politics before he runs for president. This week, our paid subscribers will also get to hear a bonus segment. The Lever's Julia Rock talks about her coverage of a recent meeting of the Federalist Society. She went to that meeting. And the Federalist Society, as you know, is the right-wing legal organization, which is largely responsible for the Supreme Court's 6-3 to three majority. Julia was in the room at this meeting, sacrificing her own happiness and mental health just to get the story. So make sure to take a listen. If you want access to Lever Time Premium, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you like this podcast and if you like our reporting, please do us a favor. Tell your friends and family about The Lever. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth. And we need all the help we can get to combat the insane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm joined by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? David, I'm going to be coming in a little hot at the top of the Today Show, but I just got to say it. Fuck Ron DeSantis, man. Like, I like, no, seriously, this guy, what he pulled this stunt, this is one of like the cruelest political stunts I think I've ever seen. You're talking like, about the migrants. I'm talking about the migrants. And like, I, I don't think I've encountered such an odious political figure in recent history. I mean, like, obviously, Trump is a horrible person, but he's like a baby brained moron. You know, like DeSantis has the full faculties of an adult human and he, he uses them to do just like the most heinous, heinous shit. And I just like, man, this, this really bothered me this 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 past week. Yeah, I mean, the story about what Ron DeSantis did uh, to those migrants uh, flying them up to Martha's Vineyard is is truly grotesque. And we're going to definitely get into that with Charlie Chris later on in the show. Um, I just mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the journalism that we do and, and the impact that the levers journalism has. And so one thing I want to mention uh, on the you love to see it frontier at the top of this show is that we actually have some evidence 
of the impact of our journalism. Uh, you just mentioned Ron DeSantis and how much of a bummer and a grotesque person he is. Well, let me let me cure that with some good news. President Biden this morning just cited the levers investigative reporting in his big speech demanding passage of the legislation to end dark money. And now the U.S. Senate is set to vote on it. We've been covering uh, dark money uh, at the lever. We've been covering uh, the big story. We broke the big story uh, of that $1.6 billion contribution uh, to the uh, dark money group, the right-wing dark money group. We've covered it here on Lever Time. Biden came out and cited that reporting to demand a passage of legislation to end dark money. You don't have to believe me. Listen to the clip from Biden's speech. And here's just one recent example. A conservative activist who spent, as was his right, decades working to put enough conservative justice on the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade now has access to $1.6 billion in dark money to do more damage and, and from our perspective and restrict more freedoms. Uh, as far as we know, that's one of the biggest dark money transfers in our history. And here's the deal. <clears throat> the public only found out about this $1.6 billion transfer because someone tipped off some of your reporters. Otherwise, we still wouldn't know about it. But now we know and there's something we can do about it. This week, the Senate's going to vote on the Disclosure Act. Man, this was so cool to hear him cite the work that our reporters have done. I was going to say we've done. I didn't do any of it, but <laughs> that, you know, that Andrew and his team did. I mean, Dark Brandon saying someone tipped off some of you reporters. He's talking about Andrew Perez, he's talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, the reporters that uh, the levers Andrew Perez worked with at ProPublica. That's our reporting. So if folks are listening to this and want to understand how reporting has an impact, can pressure and force politicians to do some things, this is a good example of that. Now, to be clear, the Disclose Act has been sitting in Congress dormant for months and months and months. And the thing is, uh, the Disclose Act wouldn't be in the news. This is, I mean, I don't think I'm overstating it here. If we hadn't broken that huge story and that story went viral, Biden obviously referencing it. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that this is a, you can see a direct line between the reporting we do, how Biden felt pressure uh, to do something, to call on the Senate to deal with it, and cited our reporting. Like, as somebody who's worked in journalism and politics for now 20 plus years, that's the kind of thing, you, truly, you love to see it. I mean, it, it really is something you just, you love to see. It doesn't happen all that often, but that's what you love to see. I, I, I was super psyched, Frank. This has made me feel better after how angry I was at Ron DeSantis this past week. Let's just <laughs> right, say I mean, that. We were, we, right. We were gearing up for this interview with Charlie Crist and, and following the Ron DeSantis stuff and feeling super bummed out. And then like Dark Brandon comes out and cites our reporting. I'm like, you know, this is why we do uh, this work. So moving on to our first story, uh, we're going to be talking about that looming railroad workers strike. A little background on what's been happening. Since 2019, over 12 different unions that comprise the rail industry workforce have been negotiating with the rail companies to improve their contracts, their working conditions, and the like. The unions are specifically demanding higher wages as well as better working conditions. Uh, what that means is uh, paid time off, 
and a more flexible schedule, particularly when it comes to scheduling medical appointments, uh, which is obviously important in particular, uh, not just generally, but in specific when it comes to the pandemic. Uh, after years of cost cutting and staff shortages, these workers say they're totally short staffed and aren't able to take sick leave due to those antiquated scheduling and attendance policies. Let me give you one example. Total rail employment has decreased from over 427,000 people in 1983 to less than 200,000 people in 2021. Now, as the potential for a strike becomes more imminent, the Biden administration has stepped in and has brokered a tentative compromise deal between the rail companies and the union leadership. Just as an FYI, uh, when it comes to uh, the railroad industry, the president and the federal government have a special set of laws uh, to try to broker these compromises because the rail industry is so integral to the overall economy. It's treated as kind of different uh, than other industries in the country. But here's the thing. Union rank and file workers still need to vote to approve that deal to avert a strike. And if there's a strike, it could result in the American supply chain coming to a screeching halt. To better unpack this entire situation, a situation that could affect uh, you, your community, uh, and the overall economy, I'm now going to be joined by Peter Goodman, the global economics correspondent for The New York Times, who's covered the supply chain, as well as Jonah Furman, who is a terrific labor reporter and regular contributor at Labor Notes. Hey, Jonah. Hey, Peter. How you guys doing? Good. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, thanks to both of you for your reporting on this. Um, Jonah, we're going to start with you. We're in the middle of a negotiation standoff between the Railroad Workers Union and the rail companies. Last week, the Biden administration stepped in to broker what it calls a compromise between the companies and the union leadership, and the unions are set to vote on that contract uh, this week. You've been keeping close tabs on the rank-and-file workers, the union members, as all of this has been unfolding. I guess to start, what's the sense you get of how they're viewing this agreement? Are, are they getting what they want? And, and as I ask that, maybe give us a little bit of an overview of what they've been demanding that they've not been getting. Yeah, I think the first thing to understand is that workers have not seen the deal yet. And this is a big deal for people trying to figure out how they're going to vote on their agreement. And you said the Rail Workers Union, there's actually 12 unions involved here. So each one of them has to pass their own contract for this thing to be actually done with. So what rail workers have seen is what's been in the press and a couple of press releases. And it sounds like the two big improvements from Thursday from the, the Marty Walsh broker deal were some addition of unpaid sick time. We don't really know how much or what it covers exactly. And some amount of cap on healthcare costs. So the number of people have seen is that your healthcare premiums can't go over $400 a month. Uh, under this deal. So we don't know. There might be more details in there, but those were, were, was, were in, the, in the news and in the press releases. Now, the question is, does that get you to 51% ratifying in 12 different unions? So if you look at where workers were at before the Thursday deal, before the new deal that stopped the strike for now, 
you had internal polling from some of these unions saying 80% wanted to vote it down and 90% authorizing strikes. So the question is, do those improvements, some unpaid sick time and a cap on how much you could pay for health care, does that swing it, you know, 30 points for, for all of the unions? Um, talking to rank and filers, it's hard. You're sort of, you know, there's 120,000 workers here. So it's like, you know, how do you take the temperature there? But there's certainly a large group of workers who are saying, this is not what we held out for. It's been three years of negotiations and this is not what the buildup was for, right? We didn't come to the edge so we could get some unpaid sick time and a cap on our healthcare costs. We wanted real time off the job, um, which is really, I think the biggest picture way to understand these negotiations has been like, the rail carriers and the federal government wants to throw money at the problem and the workers need some work-life balance. Um, so whatever form that takes, a deal that's going to be widely popular and acceptable for these workers is going to have to add to the time that you have off the job. It can come with raises or not. It can come with healthcare caps or not, but it needs some more time off the job, which is the one thing that the original deal and, and last week's deal didn't really meaningfully expand on according to what we know now again we got to wait to see the agreement well i mean the the uh, railroad executives are telling the federal government that their skyrocketing profits don't have any contributions from labor that's what they told in that federal report that we reported on uh so uh it, it's kind of amazing that that's the situation that we're in that the that the guys on the other side of the table the executives are kind of saying that out loud I want to turn to the supply chain. Um, these unions have been negotiating this contract since 2019 uh, due to the complex laws of the Railway Labor Act, which governs this particular industry, kind of separate from other industries. Uh, it, it's actually very difficult for the rail workers to come this close to a potential strike. These laws exist because the railways are so important to the supply chain. So, Peter, you wrote about this for the New York Times. Just paint a picture of what a rail strike could practically look like in the United States and what it would mean, not just for the uh, railway industry, but for the economy uh, as a whole. I mean, it could be crippling to the supply chain. Uh, rail is a central part of a supply chain that depends upon highways and ships. Uh, we live in the age of the shipping container. The whole point of the shipping container is you've got these standard size boxes that can be easily moved from one mode to the next instead of having to pack and repack uh, whatever means of conveyance you're using. You can just use a crane to lift a container off a ship that's coming in from Asia to a port uh, and then immediately put it onto rail or onto the back of a truck and move it around. So if, and what we've learned from these two years of serious disruption of the supply chain is that if any one part of it backs up, the whole thing uh, immediately uh, suffers the consequences. And so, you know, this is central to this game of chicken that's being played between the management uh, of these rail companies uh, and the unions themselves. I mean, I mean, from the union standpoint, uh, people have suffered through a pandemic uh, without, uh, to Jonah's point, paid sick leave. I mean, let's remember that the U.S. is an extraordinary outlier. This is the only developed country that doesn't provide at a national level a guarantee of paid sick leave. So we've had huge numbers of people, not just in rail, of course, in slaughterhouses, at trucking firms, in warehouses, who've had 
had to choose between uh, paying the rent, putting groceries on their table and putting their their lives at risk uh, in the middle of a pandemic, often without uh, protective gear. And people are very unhappy about that. And, and, and they understand that they were playing a vital role in keeping it all going. Uh, and so uh, the rail workers, and they're not alone in this, dock workers uh, who are involved in contentious port uh, negotiations with port overseers on the West Coast, you know, also feel like, listen, it's time for us to get compensated. And, and, and our leverage is enormous uh, because uh, if we do go on strike or if we even just slow down the works, the consequences will be great. Well, the rail companies are now uh, trying to use uh, that very reality, the potential crippling effects to the supply chain, to argue that, you know, Congress has got to get involved. They managed to get the Biden administration to get cabinet secretaries energized. Uh, so, so they're using that threat of disruption to the supply chain for their own leverage in terms of, you know, keeping this whole system going. Well, I want to talk about what Congress could do here. As you suggested, because the economic stakes are so high, we are effectively watching a game of chicken unfold. The rail unions, the workers, knowing that they could they could really uh, slow down and harm the economy. Uh, and the rail companies think their industry is too crucial for Congress to allow their unions to strike. Now, here's the thing. It, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, a Democrat, uh, who I think last cycle was among the top recipients of campaign cash from the railway industry. Uh, he's threatened workers by saying that Congress will pass legislation banning them from striking, quote, if needed. Jonah, let me ask you the question of what does that mean in practice? For folks who don't understand what Congress could do or what the Biden administration could do under existing laws to essentially uh, block a strike. Like it's hard to conceive of how does the government prevent people from not going to work? Well, so something you need to understand is the Railway Labor Act builds in Congress at the end of it as sort of this backstop of like, if we get to a work stoppage, it's basically expected that Congress will pass a bill and they can pass a rail bill faster than anything else. They, they'll pass it in 24 hours. Um, the 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 bill that they would pass, you, you can see GOP senators brought this bill to the floor Tuesday night before the potential shutdown, which was basically saying implement the recommendations of the presidential emergency board. The presidential emergency board is part of the rail process, too. It happened in August of this year. Basically, Joe Biden convenes a group of mediators who say, we've looked at all the facts and here's a 120 page document of what the deal should be. And then the unions and the, and the rail carriers, the employers take that language and say, okay, we'll build a union contract out of it and send it out for a vote. Now, this was the thing that workers were like, this is unacceptable. The PEB, the presidential emergency board document was the thing that, that said all those things. Here's 24% in raises and no changes to your time off the job or maybe one additional day. The, the reason that Congress has the workers in a corner here is because they can basically say, look, Joe Biden said this is the deal you should have. So if you go on strike and we have to stop a shutdown, send you back to work, it'll be under the terms of this agreement. And the GOP, of course, loves this because they can say, look, it's the Democrats said you had to go back to work. It's not us. Um, now, on the other hand, there's nothing stopping Congress from having a bill that says, OK, it's the PEB recommendations plus 15 paid sick days or plus, you know, like <laughs> right, you, right. you have a, a weird situation here where in the rest of the private sector, this doesn't exist. But under the Railway Labor Act, it's expected that Congress can step in and say, 
here's the deal you're going to work under. They can also say, here's, here's the deal. You go back to work and you're forced into some sort of arbitration. Now, again, the workers look at it and they see that if you put another arbitrator on this case who already has 120 pages of arbitration from the president, they're probably going to say that's the deal you're going to have. So a lot of workers I talk to, what they would like to see is, of course, something more ambitious from Congress that says, here's some paid sick days too. But short of that, just say, stay out of it. Don't give the carriers, don't give the boss an, an out through Congress where they say, we're going to give a boss-friendly contract. Just stay out of it and make the carriers reckon with the economic pain that they're going to feel. You know, they're losing a lot of money on a strike. And that's how it, traditionally a strike works, right? You have the workers say, we're not going to work. So you're going to, the boss is going to feel economic pain and they'll have to respond to that. If they have Congress as this release valve, the workers are looking at it and saying, well, we strike and Congress gives us the deal or we don't strike and the carriers give us the deal. What's the difference? So they're really hoping that Congress will either stay out or have a better option on the table than just the GOP saying, go to work under President Biden's deal. It won't surprise either of you to learn that the rail companies have been reporting record profits over the last several years. I mentioned it before. I'm going to mention it again. At the same time, rail CEOs have pulled down over $200 million in compensation in the last uh, three years, and they've spent almost $200 billion on stock buybacks and dividends over the last dozen years. Those are uh, actions that benefit wealthy shareholders primarily. To add insult to industry, again, according to a statement by the Presidential Emergency Board, rail carriers maintain, this is a direct quote, quote, that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contributions by labor. Um, Peter, I want to ask you this question about a worker shortage. It seems to be what the rail carriers are saying that, 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 that they're not willing to give in on on the scheduling stuff, that it relates to uh, worker shortages. Or, and I put shortage in, in quotes because there's a debate over, is a worker shortage a worker shortage or a wage shortage? I would just ask you what to make of this. Is there a real shortage of workers preventing company management from actually um, doing what workers want when it comes to schedule? Is it a wage shortage? Like the executives don't want to pay as well to right. get enough workers? Like wh wh what's going on here? Yeah, that's a super important question. Well, in the immediate term, there are shortages of workers in lots of industries in the supply chain for the simple reason that the unemployment rate's really low and people suddenly are in a position where they can go get a better deal someplace else. So it is hard to entice people into industries that are that are difficult. I mean, we're talking about physically taxing jobs, people who are away from their families for a long time. We know there are dangers. But in terms of the broader context, uh, again, not just in rail, but in trucking as well, uh, the shortage conversation is usually industry lobbying. You know, I, I'm more familiar with this in the truck driver scenario where, you know, the, the trucking industry has leaned heavily on the Biden administration to expand the ranks. You know, let's drop the age from 21 to 18 at which you can get people to drive a truck because, oh, there's a shortage. Well, in that case, you know, there's three times as many holders of commercial driver's licenses in the United States as we actually need. But we've run out of people willing to take the deal, which usually involves some kind of predatory lending to pay for a credential program to get a commercial driver's license, all kinds of predatory leasing arrangements. Well, in rail, it's important to remember that this uh, thing that you just alluded to, uh, precision scheduled railroading, which is the just-in-time manufacturing for rail, uh, you know, just-in-time manufacturing, the very commonsensical idea going back to Toyota uh, way back in the middle of the last century 
century that instead of building, you know, as many cars as possible and then figuring out how to sell them, just build them according to actual demand and limit this supply of of parts and components, which was then sort of hijacked by consultancies like McKinsey and turned into uh, this very crude directive to just slash inventory, slash wages, take the proceeds and give it to the shareholder through share buybacks and, and dividends. Well, so that's applied in rail through this so-called precision scheduled railroading, which is a way of cutting service, cutting maintenance, cutting a capital outlay on locomotives. So suddenly equipment's breaking down a lot more frequently and crucially laying off uh, roughly one quarter of the workforce in the five years before the pandemic, and then laying off more people in the first wave of the pandemic when most economists thought, oh, this is going to be a terrible recession. We're not going to have demand for anything, not understanding, okay, we're not going to the gym anymore, but we're going to buy Pelotons. They're going to come into ports from China uh, on the West Coast of the US, and they're going to get where they're going by truck, rail, et cetera. We're actually going to need more people, not fewer. So, the big picture is, you are correct in, in putting the emphasis on share buybacks, these rail companies cut spending on human beings, on equipment, while they transferred the proceeds to themselves, to the executive ranks, to the shareholder ranks. And once we got a shock, they said, oh my goodness, we can't get enough people. We need you know, all sorts of subsidies and emergency directives, and we can't possibly afford things like paid sick leave. And the workers bore the brunt of that. And guess what? They're not very happy about it. Uh, and they're not motivated to go back and, and do their jobs unless they get something that they feel is fair compensation. Okay. To, to bring this conversation to the macro, I want to ask you both a question that's been on my mind that, that go, that's about both the, the railway situation, but also about kind of what we've been calling critical or essential workers across the country in the post-pandemic. Well, I guess it's not post-pandemic, but at least the uh, non-lockdown part of the pandemic. Um, it seems to me that when I was growing up, coming up in politics, there was this idea that you wanted the labor market to work for wages and that, that you you didn't want a labor shortage, but you wanted a tight labor market to raise wages, to give workers more bargaining power uh, so that that companies wouldn't see workers as expendable as they g had gotten used to seeing them. Workers, therefore, have more power to bargain, like we're seeing uh, railway workers uh, try to bargain, like we've seen nurses also try to bargain, et cetera, et cetera, grocery store workers and the like. And it seemed to me that this was what – you kind of wanted out of macroeconomic policy. Tight labor markets help workers. Now we're seeing this idea that tight labor markets, I mean, it's been promoted. I'm not saying I agree with it, but tight labor markets are now the problem, that workers having too much power, I'm putting too much power in quotes, that that's a problem. I just wonder what your reaction to that is. Isn't one way to look at what we're looking at here? Yes, it's it's kind of tumultuous uh, and turbulent and it makes the economy, I guess, feel a little bit more unstable. But isn't this, aren't we actually in some ways in a good position if you care about workers finally having a little bit more power vis-a-vis uh, -vis their negotiations with capital? Jonah, I'll ask you that first. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what you're describing is like people, you know, they say generals fight the last war. The last time we had inflation like this, there was something like 
a wage price spiral. Basically, inflation causes prices to go way up, so workers are demanding more. The crucial difference is in the 70s, uh, we were like pre the union busting that has happened over the past 50 years. Workers were a lot less are, are now a lot less powerful and a lot less able to demand we need XYZ raise to keep up with inflation. I mean, iconic unions like the UAW have dropped the cost of living adjustment that was part of these, these mechanisms that would keep wages up with prices. If you look at the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just put out data, I think yesterday that was, uh, you know, real wages have fallen something like 4% since a year ago today. So we're definitely not seeing wage price spiral that people are fear-mongering about. What we are seeing is obviously corporate profiteering, which is not new, except it used to come with also this bigger piece of the pie for the workers who are only really able to you know, obtain that with high union density and strong unions. So, you know, people are pointing to, oh, these rail workers are, you know, getting offered 24% over the next five years. Not a stunning increase, but way above what workers without a union, which is much more of the economy than it was in the 70s, last time we saw anything like this, are getting. You know, John Deere was an iconic pandemic strike. They said deemed essential in 2020, proven in 2021. They got an immediate 10% wage increase. That was basically eaten by inflation within the next year after that. So, you know, I think a big difference from what we've seen in the past with how wages and a tight labor market and inflation are supposed to interact is that assumed this like New Deal arrangement, post-war arrangement, where unions were playing the function of the welfare state. Now we've dropped the unions, but we still have the inflation and the profiteering. So you're, you're, you have this formula where, and, and the other thing about it is that the, the high profile fights, things you hear about are the union fights and strikes. You're not hearing about people working at Target whose wages are just dying with inflation. You know, you're not hearing low wage workers who have no protection and no mechanism and no voice in the public and no political outlet. You know, you're only hearing about unions and people like to pretend like, oh, those rail workers, they're just, you know, the blue collar workforce in this country is too powerful because they're all, you know, living like it's 50 years ago when there were actual organizations for workers to, to have a political and economic voice, which is the key difference right now. And I, I also think like this idea when you hear kind of uh, corporate executives, consultants, kind of pundits freak out about, you know, wage increases. One of the things that's written out of the story is some of those wage increases that we've seen, and I agree with you, overall wages are not kind of skyrocketing, but some of the wage increases we've seen are essentially recuperating wage increases that should have been paid like over decades, right? It's like workers are getting like a little bit more than they used to get while they were being fleeced through the kind of deunionization, the last 30 years of deunionization. Uh, and, and of course, then there's the corporate profiteering angle here. So Peter, just to build on what Jonah said, I mean, this whole notion that, you know, worker power is bad, workers are getting too greedy, um, is also, and you alluded to this, Jonah, is also uh, countered by the fact that it's not like companies are doing badly right now. It's exactly the opposite. The companies are raking in macroeconomically 
record, record profits. I mean, I guess I'm, the question is, what do you think corporate executives thought was going to happen, right? They're just going to rake in record profits. It's going to be a particularly difficult work situation because of the pandemic and, and the like. You think they got used to workers just like rolling over and having absolutely, you know, you know, nothing to say and and, and just, just completely playing dead? Is that what they, I, I think that's what they must have expected, right? I mean, our supply chain and really our economy writ large is built on the understanding that there's a permanent group, a large group of people who are so desperate that they will take whatever job is on offer. They will take jobs where there's no health care. Uh, they will take jobs where they have to choose between their own safety uh, and their paycheck. They will take jobs that keep them far from their families and unable to schedule basic things like taking themselves or their children to to see the doctor. You know, when we talk about the supply chain returning to normal or the economy returning to normal after the pandemic shock, we got to remember that normalcy for now going on, you know, half a century in the United States is an economy where huge numbers of people have been rationed out of healthcare, where they can't afford their housing, where they can't bargain collectively, they can't get their piece of the action. So corporate executives, they're telling a kind of truth when they say, hey, we can't afford this. I mean, yeah, we can all see. Well, what do you mean you can't afford it? You know, you're making record profits, you're paying huge dividends and buybacks to shareholders. The corp, the people actually running these large corporations are answerable to boards that have organized themselves as centers of profit being returned to shareholders. And if you don't play that way, you lose your own job at the, at, at the top. So those pressures are real. It doesn't make it just, and it doesn't make it um, good for society for all the obvious reasons that, you know, it's not a great thing to have large numbers of people running around without health care or, or reliable housing. It turns out it's not even a very good way to just get a package delivered to your door. Cause, you know, you go back, I'm writing a history of the global supply chain. You go back to Henry Ford, who was a horrible person. He was a famous anti-Semite. He was a racist. He crushed unions, but he was, he knew a few things. And one of the things he understood was if you don't pay people enough, now he paid them on unilateralist terms. He wasn't into collective bargaining. If you don't pay people enough, they will not show up motivated. They will show up distracted by their financial problems at home. It's not a good way to keep the gears moving. And over the decade, over the century, really, since what we've done again and again as as financial interests have taken control of our economy is we've removed resilience. We've removed, you know, backup plans, extra parts in warehouses, more workers, people paid enough that they can feel reasonable reasonably comfortable. And we've kind of cut everything to the bone, which is great when there's no shock. And when there is a shock, the whole thing breaks down. And that's that's where we are now. And I think your point about the economy, the quote, normal economy being essentially built upon misery, the assumption that there must be a certain amount, a lot really, of misery baked into how a how the normal quote unquote economy works and how a corporation operates uh, based on relying on that misery. It, that is a profound point. And I think that's when you hear folks say, we got to get back to normal. Uh, we got to get back to the way it was. What they're effectively saying, whether they know it or not, whether they're insinuating it or not, is we have to get back to just presuming and accepting that 
mass misery among workers is just a thing that is part of the American economy. And as Jonah has reported in his reporting about rail rail workers, for instance, uh, workers are just start, uh, at least some workers are in a position to be saying, no, that's bullshit. We're not going to we're, we're not going to take it anymore. And and to my mind, that's a good thing. Jonah Furman of Labor Notes, where can folks find your work? Uh, check out labornotes.org. And you can also follow me on Twitter, just at Jonah Furman. And Peter Goodman of the New York Times, and people can find your work at the New York Times. But sure. Peter is also the author of the book Davos Man. Peter, where can they find your work? Uh, they can find it on my website, PeterSGoodman.com, or Twitter, Peter S. Goodman. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, David. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with Charlie Crist, the Democratic nominee running against the current Florida governor and professional troll, Ron DeSantis. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, I'm going to be speaking with Charlie Crist. Charlie was the Attorney General of Florida and then the Governor of Florida from 2007 to 2011. Fun fact, he was originally elected Governor of Florida as a Republican and then left the party while in office. He later was elected to Congress as a Democrat, and he's now running again for governor as the Democratic nominee to unseat the world-class asshole that is Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis has emerged as one of the most repugnant public figures of the last decade. He is basically the human embodiment and political equivalent of Florida man, which Wikipedia defines as, quote, an alleged prevalence of male persons performing irrational or absurd actions in the U.S. state of Florida. <laughs> it comes from, you know, the headlines that are like Florida man does, you know, something insane. Ron DeSantis is like the political version of Florida man. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past week, you know that DeSantis just made national headlines when he used state government funds to charter two planes with about 50 Venezuelan migrants on board. The planes were chartered from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, basically as a political stunt to try to own the libs on the issue of immigration. Here's one of the crazy parts. The flights he chartered weren't even from Florida, the state where he's governor. They were from another state. And now there are allegations that the operation deliberately misled the migrants with false promises of benefits when they landed in Massachusetts. DeSantis is now facing a Texas law enforcement investigation and calls for prosecution. DeSantis has been seen by many as the clear successor to Donald Trump and may very well run for president in 2024, regardless of whether Trump runs or not. But he first has to win re-election in this year's governor's race in Florida. Otherwise, he may be ousted from the national political stage two years before his potential presidential bid. Luckily, the person he's running against, Charlie Crist, was already the governor of Florida and a former Republican. So if there's any shot of DeSantis losing this race, Charlie Crist is probably one of the few people who has a chance to pull it off. Governor Chris, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. No, it's a pleasure. Great to be with you, David. Thank you. Okay, so listen, Ron DeSantis, your opponent, made national headlines last week when he chartered two planes with about 50 migrants on board from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. It's been all over the news. Uh, DeSantis uh, denying uh, that the migrants were put on the plane under false pretenses. Some have accused DeSantis of human trafficking. 
you have condemned him and called on the Department of Justice to investigate the legality of the stunt. I guess the first question that I think a lot of people are asking is, why do you think the sitting governor of a very large state seems to prioritize this kind of political theater of cruelty as opposed to like doing the basic functions of being governor? Uh, several things, uh, David. It's a great question. Um, number one, I, I think he's trying to distract from the real issue he's afraid of, which is choice. You know, the choice is choice in this election. And Ron DeSantis recently signed a horrific uh, bill, 15-week bill. But the worst part about it is there's no exception for rape or incest. And what's what's really strange about this uh, scenario we're talking about, Tuesday of last week, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina introduces a bill that mimics DeSantis' bill, puts it front and center on the national agenda again. And so the next day, he pulls this stunt of flying 50 people from Texas to Massachusetts. He's obviously trying to change the subject. He knows that women are going to vote in droves in this election, and he's trying to distract from that issue. And he does it in one of the most cruel ways possible, using human beings as pawns. It's it's unbelievable. Do you think that he should be prosecuted? And, and I mean, you've called for an investigation, but I mean, there's been an argument out there that this is a potentially criminal act, that he's not acting as governor if he's doing something in Texas, uh, that he's he's not sort of above the law. Where do you come down on that? Well, I, I think that's probably the case. But, you know, I'm a former attorney general of Florida, too. And so I understand that you have to conduct a proper investigation <clears throat> to make sure we know what the facts are uh, before you charge anybody with anything. That's what a free society does. And so I think that has to ensue first. I was uh, very pleased to hear that a local sheriff in Texas has already initiated such an investigation. I think that's a great first step. Uh, and I think we'll get to the bottom of what happened here. But this much I can already tell you, the statute that appropriated $12 million total to be able to do this kind of activity specifically says from in-state, meaning like Florida, <laughs> yeah, this charade originated in San Antonio, Texas, ended up, as we all know now, in Massachusetts. So it looks like he's already violated that law at a minimum. Um, and, you know, we can take it from there. Um, but the cruel, repulsive, inhumane nature of this is just he's willing to use people as pawns to try to further his political career. And the irony, David, I think he's ruining his political career. He may be, you know, doing better among Republican primary voters for 24. But the vast amount of Floridians who are decent minded, good people are appalled by this kind of behavior and we're embarrassed by it, frankly. So DeSantis has broken gubernatorial fundraising records. I've worked in politics and media for a long time. I mean, one hundred and seventy seven million dollars uh, for a gubernatorial candidate is just just I, I, it's hard to really fathom. And the thing is, he seems like in many ways kind of an openly transactional and and corrupt politician in this way. I mean, he was backed by a nonprofit bankrolled by the big energy utility in the state, which was then allowed to jack up rates. He helped his donors deregulate the nursing home industry. As we reported, he's promoted COVID therapies from the biotech company whose executive is one of his top donors. I wonder, do you think folks in Florida are sort of upset about this kind of corruption or are we kind of in the age of like Donald Trump where everyone just kind of accepts this thing, this this kind of corruption as just 
politics as usual. I think they're upset about it. Um, you know, I'm here in Punta Gorda, Florida, on the west coast of Florida, just a little south of St. Petersburg, where I live in Tampa Bay. And, you know, we had a, a group here this afternoon for a luncheon, probably 200 people or so. And this is a very red county. I should stress that. And yet that kind of enthusiasm exists. And I guarantee you there were some moderate Republicans in that crowd today because this is an issue of decency, corruption, decency, right, wrong. It's not even right versus left anymore in this election. It's right versus wrong. And, and you're right. I mean, one of the guys who gave him $15 million, a guy named Kev Griffin, $15 million, because we have no limit in Florida, uh, had uh, the majority of the shares of stock on, in Regeneral, which is, as you appropriately cited, a COVID treatment, apparently a good medicine. But when the governor of our state, we have 22 million people, it's a pretty big market, um, doesn't really advocate wearing masks or getting a vaccine when we were at the height of the pandemic. Uh, but advocates this medicine and goes around the state trumpeting it. And, and you know, but he's covered by Fox News. So he's doing that. He's a huckster for this guy around the country nationwide. It is corrupt. And, and I can't believe an ethics complaint hasn't been filed against him for it. OK, so I've got a question about Florida. Uh, since 2000, uh, we've joked at times in my household that that you should never bet on Florida making a good political choice. You hope the state's going to do the right thing and then it doesn't. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who aren't Republicans feel that way. You were elected as the Republican governor of Florida uh, and you and you switched parties in 2010. This is back in 2007 to 2011. In retrospect, it looks like you saw the MAGA transformation coming. But then again, it's not like the Republican Party was super normal and moderate back in the good old days of the George Bush administration. Uh, and also, since you switched parties, Florida has gone pretty Republican after your tenure the state elected and reelected Rick Scott as governor, rolling right into DeSantis. The state also voted for Donald Trump twice. I guess the question is, what do you think has changed in Florida since you were governor? Why do you think the state has voted for more statewide Republicans? And why now do you think Florida voters could be more receptive to a Democratic nominee for governor? It's a great question, David. And, and I'll tell you this. This election four years ago, for Ron DeSantis was the closest gubernatorial election in the history of Florida. He barely got elected in, in my purple state. <laughs> and, and that's what gives me hope, because um, I know that's still the case. We're about a third registered Republican, about a third registered Democratic, and about a third registered Independent. So that's purple by definition, really. And so, you know, we have a House and a Senate in Tallahassee that are pretty strongly Republican. You're right. But they got to rig the seats, you know, but in statewide campaigns, they can't do that. Uh, the boundary is the boundary of the state of Florida. And the fact that um, he barely got elected, had to have a recount uh, when he did get elected four years ago, tells me that we're still purple uh, and we have an opportunity. And with his charades that he's pulling, taking away a woman's right to choose, even in cases of rape or incest, uh, doing what he did with the migrants last week. Uh, shipping them from Texas to Massachusetts. He keeps doubling down on the red meat, hard right stuff in anticipation of 24. And he seems to be forgetting, you know, 22s before 24. He's taken his eye off the ball. I really believe it. Let me ask a climate question. The politics of climate change in Florida. Florida uniquely exposed to some of the most, the worst biblical effects of climate change, floods, hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera. 
seems to me that the Democratic Party, uh, for all its flaws, at least acknowledges climate change and proposes things to address it, while the Republican Party has almost no position on the issue at all. It feels straight out of our movie, like, don't look up. By the way, I saw that that you uh, were a big part of that. Kudos to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. I'm just curious, what do Republicans, uh, Republicans like DeSantis, what are they saying about climate? How do you, how do you think voters feel about the issue in Florida? Republican voters, independent, is it a salient issue in Florida? It is. It is. And, And I think it's because it's Florida. You know, so we're surrounded by water, Gulf of Mexico on the West Coast, Florida Bay to the South, the Atlantic Ocean on the East Coast. And so, you know, we're surrounded by beauty and nature and environment that's precious and really precious, not only uh, because of this, the, the beautiful nature of it, but the fact that it drives our economy, tourism. I mean, people come to Florida because it is a beautiful place to visit. And so if we don't take care of our environment, if we don't address climate change in Florida, we're going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, the tourist industry. So I'll tell you the first time I really got engaged in climate change, I was still a Republican. It was about a year before I ran for governor the first time. And I had a meeting with John McCain in Coral Gables, Florida, near Miami. And, you know, he was thinking about running for president. I was thinking about running for governor at the time. And we just had a nice one on one meeting for like a half hour. At the end of the meeting, he gets up. He had to go. Uh, he turns around. And he goes, Charlie, something else you ought to think about. And I said, what's that, Senator? He goes, climate change. He said, important issue. Dig into it. Bear down on it. It's going to be important. You're going to probably run for governor of Florida. You're going to need to do this. And my God, how prescient was he with that? As a Republican, right? But he was a unique Republican, uh, let's be honest. But I'm the only governor in the history of my state, as a Republican still at the time, David, who held a climate change summit in Miami, uh, along with Governor Schwarzenegger, then from California, uh, and people from all over the globe. Um, but it's, it's, it's front and center. It's very important. Even Republican Floridians are concerned about climate change in the Sunshine State. Well, that, that's good to hear. Uh, I want to ask about your running mate. Your running mate is the president of the United Teachers of Dade, the largest teachers union in the southeastern United States. Um, it's not all that often. In fact, I can't come up with it with an example uh, of a union president being the nominee for a statewide office in the way that, that your running mate is. What inspired you to choose Carla as your running mate, what does it say anything about your views on education, on union rights in general? Well, union rights for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, working folks need to have advocates, uh, especially in Florida right now. We have been rated the most expensive state to live in, in the United States, more than California, more than New York. And so, you know, middle class folks, union uh, people by and large um, need an advocate. And so I thought it would make a statement about that, given uh, what she has done for United Teachers of Dade. But more to the point, she taught for 10 years. She's a teacher and, and a special ed teacher at that, uh, which really hit my heart um, that, you know, you got to have people, I think, in public service that care about others. That said to me volumes about how much Carla Hernandez cares about others being a speecher uh, of special ed students. Um, all these things factor in, but really it was her, her enigmatic nature, her, her charisma, her enthusiasm, 
uh, and the fact that she was a special ed teacher all added together to make a, a great pick. Uh, the question of abortion, I want to just spotlight one more time here because it, it's so important. I think there are a lot of folks who would look at, at you focusing on abortion, a lot of folks from outside of Florida and say, I don't get it. Uh, a Southern state uh, is – the Democrats are somehow going to – going to win or abortion is a winning issue in a conservative uh, Republican leaning uh, state in the South, right? The the old tropes, the stereotypes are, you know, uh, the South is more conservative, more Republican, more anti-abortion than the rest of the country. You, you're making the abortion issue in the wake of the Supreme Court decision and in the wake of DeSantis's own anti-abortion uh, laws, you're making that a central issue. What do you say to folks who would be like, who are like, I, I don't get it. I, I thought Florida is a Southern state, a conservative state. I thought they'd like what, what the Republicans in the national Republicans are doing on abortion. They hate it. They hate it because it's a freedom issue. It's a respect issue. And it shows the lack of respect that Governor DeSantis has for women in my state. And the fact that he signed that bill that has no exception for rape or incest is, number one, unconscionable, uh, outrages women in my state. To your point, well taken, you know, is Florida more conservative than that? Um, does the right to choose really weigh in that heavily on the voters of a state like, like ours? Well, let's look at Kansas. <laughs> Just had a referendum on, on choice overwhelmingly pass it. Let's look at Sarah Palin's candidacy in red Alaska. The Democrat won female candidate. Um, yeah, I, I, I listen, people are decent minded. They don't like migrants being shipped around. Women don't like being told what to do by a white guy, Ron DeSantis, and they're not going to put up with this. And I don't care if they're in Kansas, Alaska or Florida. Um, this isn't going to pass the test. And Floridian women and fair-minded men, of course, are going to stand up for a woman's right to choose. I'm confident. A Susquehanna poll has you only four points behind DeSantis. An AARP poll has it at three points. What do you think has changed in the last few weeks of this race? I mean, this race, I, I'll be, I'll, I'll just confess, I, I didn't presume that this race would be close. DeSantis has got a huge war chest. It's a, you know, Republican leaning state. And then I saw these polls and I'm, I'm thinking something, something must be going on. What do you think it is? You know what I think? Um, and, and it's a great question. And, and then the, I think the mistake a lot of folks make is, okay, he's got like $300 million. I'm being sarcastic, but it's in excess of a hundred and think, how do you compete with that? Well, you compete with that by campaigning. You compete with that by having enough to communicate. You compete with that by going on a podcast like yours. God bless you. And so what I think has happened, once the primary was over, David, it was then one-on-one. -on -one. And people are looking at Ron DeSantis in my state, and they're seeing the weird crap that he's doing and the unkind and cruel things that he is doing, taking away a woman's right to choose. And they're like, oh, my God, is there an alternative to this? And then they look and they see me. And they go, shoot, I remember that guy was our governor. And, you know, he's not a jerk. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe more of us will vote for him. And they've been, the numbers have been closer by the day, practically. And here's what's else interesting about that. He has flooded the airwaves since the primary over three weeks ago. We've been dark the whole time. And we've gone up and he's gone down. What does that tell me? Floridians know his product. 
and they don't like it. And the alternative is becoming more attractive to them. And here we are. So the last question, very simply, what would you say to a voter in Florida who hasn't yet decided on who to vote for governor? What's the case in like 30 seconds, 60 seconds you would make for why they should vote for you instead of their incumbent governor? If you want a governor who really does care about you, and if you're a woman and you're right to choose and will fight for it, and has said already that the first day of the new Chris administration, I'll sign an executive order protecting a woman's right to choose. If you're having to pay property insurance in the Sunshine State right now, which is through the roof, and you want a governor who before, as governor, uh, reduced rates by 10%, as opposed to this one who has done nothing about it. The bottom line is, if you want a governor who cares about you instead of his own political future, you should vote for Charlie Crist, because I'll never forget you and I'll always have your back. Governor Charlie Crist, thank you so much for taking the time today and good luck in your race against Ron DeSantis. Thank you, David. Great to be with you, sir. Appreciate it. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment. It's Julia Rock's coverage of a meeting held by the Federalist Society weeks after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But I would say it was a very cheery event. And he even made a comment during his speech sort of to the effect of like, well, you know, the court used to sort of be complicated. There were a lot of these 5-4 decisions. You didn't quite know where they were going to go. But now it's like we all know what the court's doing. Um, so I would say the vibe was sort of like we are the Federalist Society and this is our Supreme Court. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting... Please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat. <laughs>